Welcome back to Ratchet & Wrench Radio, strategies and inspiration for auto care success. I'm your host, Chris Jones, where today I'm joined by Murray Voth, the president of RPM Training. Today, Murray's going to bring in his 15 years experience as an automotive shop management trainer and implementation coach, and we're going to be talking about why the bottom line is always an afterthought. Murray's going to walk shop owners through a scenario of a particular income goal, an annual income goal, and a profit margin goal. And he's going to walk you backwards through the progression of how do you get to that goal based on your parts margin, based on your labor rates, and based on the owner's salary. So he's going to figure out, he's going to show you how to figure out how to get all that stuff working for you so that you know what your numbers need to be to hit your goal every single time, no matter where you move that goal number to. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Murray is going to bring a lot of really uh, cool flavor to it. So without further ado, here's Murray Voth. Well, hey, Murray, welcome to Ratchet and Wrench Radio. Oh, nice to be here, Chris. Yeah, great to have you. So you're the founder of RPM Training. Tell our audience about your company. Yeah, so RPM Training is a uh, shop, automotive shop management training company, coaching company. Um, The RPM stands for Results, Performance, and Mastery. My tagline is creating results, performance, and mastery, one shop owner, one service advisor, one technician at a time. So we deal with uh, learning key performance indicators, numbers. Uh, We talk about processes and systems. Um, So I have uh, courses as well as we have, uh, I call them mastermind groups, but other people call them 20 groups. And um, we have uh, five of those. And I just brought on a new coach and a second one in the wing. So I'm really excited about uh, how we're able to serve the industry and, and really help shop owners Achieve, achieve the dreams that they've been trying to do all these years, right? Right on, man. And congratulations on, uh, you know, adding a new coach to the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. So most small businesses like shops tend to focus on sales, but you prefer a bottom line approach. Can you walk us through that? You know, first talking about the net profit approach, then looking into the parts side and then how the operating expenses all come into play. Sure. Yeah, I'd be really happy to do that. Um, most small businesses, including big businesses, businesses, always tend to focus on sales. Um, and to just give me give you an example of, uh, of a, a shop I knew that uh, grew their business to two and a half million dollars in sales in the year. But at the end of the year, the owner was taking money out of his, uh, well, in the United States would be a 401k, I guess. In Canada, it would be RRSPs. Uh, had to take money out of his personal retirement fund to make payroll at the end of it. Um, so he had been growing and growing the sales but hadn't been focusing on what what I call the gross profit, which then leads to the bottom line or to the net profit. So I like to teach people to start at the bottom and work their way the other way. A lot of accountants actually tease me when when they hear me talk about this because they're they're not used to hearing it from from a different paradigm. And so the other thing, Chris, that I get shop owners to talk about, especially new ones, people who are are just brand new at it or thinking about opening up a shop. Um, a lot of them are excited to be shop owners, entrepreneurs. Um, they want to, uh, you know, do it better than their boss is doing it. They think they can serve the client better. They can they can treat their employees better. Uh, they want to make more money, you know, because you know I'm getting paid thirty dollars an hour and the shop charges one twenty. There's you know, I'm, my boss is getting rich um, off of my back. And uh, I want some flexibility. You know, I want to come and go. I see my boss who owns the shop coming and going, and uh, I want that ability to do that. So they open up their business, and within a year, they're working 18 hours a day. Uh, They're yelling at their employees the way their boss yelled at them, 
They don't have the flexibility that they needed and they don't know where the money is. They can't understand why sales are growing and uh, they, uh, <clears throat> you know, they haven't achieved what, what they set out to do. So the intentions are right. The intentions are good. This is not a critique of somebody wanting to go into business. I think this is just being naive. And, and hey, Chris, I failed my first time when I was in my 20s with this whole concept. Same way. So what the story that I tell is the story that I experienced when I was young, right? So I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, burnt the t-shirt. <laughs> and, and now I'm I'm helping other shops avoid that uh, that thing. So so here's what I want people to think about. Chances are you are, are already working, right? You are a technician, maybe you're a service advisor, service manager, and you have a full-time employment and you're bringing home a paycheck, right? Hopefully a half decent paycheck. So one of the things you have to think about is, <clears throat> is I've got to pay myself, right? Second thing I get people to think about is if you invested a chunk of money, you know, right? if you, if you, for some reason, got an inheritance, uh, grandpa dies and gives you, you know, $200,000, you'd probably pay off some debt and then put the rest into stocks, bonds, whatever, you know, your, your financial advisor is telling you. And you would expect some sort of rate of return. Um, that, that's just how our free market economy works. And that's how our retirement works and savings works and compound interest. And all of it comes from return on investment. So what happens is shop owners start off on a shoestring. Half the time, they're putting stuff on their credit card to start out. And uh, you know, by the end of the first couple of years, they've invested a couple hundred thousand dollars in this business. And they're not getting a return on investment on that, right? In fact, they're, they're, they're paying interest on it, significant interest on it, and, and going backwards. So the idea here is, is to make a business plan that starts with net profit first, all right? At the end of the day, based on, you know, sort of my, my initial research of, of the type of shop I'm going to have, you know, hopefully I've done some sort of a business plan. Um, I'm using an example of $100,000 net profit. And what I mean by net profit is what fancy people call, you know, EBITDA or something like that, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and all the rest of that kind of stuff, right? This is the the stuff that you take out as shareholders of your company, and then your accountant helps you, you know, reduce the amount of taxes you pay on that. So if we take $100,000, we divide it by the industry benchmark of 20%, which is 0.2, right? So you take that 100,000, you divide it by 0.2, and your calculator will tell you, that you need $500,000 in sales to uh, um, to achieve that net profit. I mean, that's the initial starting point. Obviously, there's lots of other things to, to think about. If I take $500,000 and divide it by 12, and, and one of the things about me, Chris, is, is I can't talk and do math at the same time, so I'm using a calculator. So I'm going to need to do around $41,666 a month to achieve this. Now, I was reading a forum, and, and some of the listeners, your listeners, were probably on this Facebook forum, where somebody asked the question, why 20%? Where, where does that come from? And there was a pretty good discussion there among shop owners. I think a couple of other coaches uh, spoke into it. Um, and, uh, you know, I was actually thinking a lot about where did I, where did I get that information? How did I know that? Um, I've been using that number since I was a shop owner, and I was coached back in a 93, 1993, right before most of you guys were born that are listening to this. Um, but based on my experience in the industry and my reading, 
I believe it comes from the new car dealer network 20 group system that started in the 70s, moved into the 80s. Um, and I believe, and I, I have worked with some new car dealers historically in the past when they tried to go private, like go independent, um, and they needed a certain return on investment. So that's where they started, right? My dealership is worth $5 million. I need a return on investment of whatever percentage, 15% on my investment. That reflects back to 20% net profit is what I need to achieve my return on investment. So that's a hunch I have. I can't prove it in black and white. But at the end of the day, um, it's a number that is doable. It is a number that my, you know, the majority of my clients achieve once they've got processes in place and understand how to run their shops. Um, it is a very doable number, and it seems to give us that return on investment that we need. All right, so I just wanted to clarify that for our listeners. Um, if you feel that like you want to do 15%, great. If you feel like you want to go for 25%, great. I'm not here to be that black and white. I'm here to help you get to where you want to get. All right, so circling back, $500,000. Let's split that in half. We Half of that would be service. And half of that would be parts. Now, you might have noticed that I used the word service instead of labor. A good friend of mine, shop owner, um, felt that the word labor was negative in the industry. You know, I have to charge people labor. Um, and so he actually changed the word to service in his shop. Nothing says the word labor. All of his software uses the word service. And he's coming at it from the idea of other professionals, right? A lawyer advocates for you, but they still charge you. An accountant advocates for you, they still charge you. An engineer does what they need to do, but they still charge you for services rendered. So in my opinion, in my training, I use the word service instead of labor. All right. So though your listeners hopefully will will be able to follow that. So half of the sales would be service, 250000 and the other half would be parts. Now, again, people are listening to this, and I'm not sure, Chris, if people will get some show notes with this if they want to. Uh, to sort of see this math in a, you know, out of my uh, my notes to you, but um, on that parts portion, in order to achieve our net profit, we need to make a fifty percent gross profit on our parts at least, which means that we're going to be buying in a year one hundred twenty five thousand dollars in parts, right, and then doubling our money to create that gross profit of one hundred twenty five thousand. On the service end of things. We need to make a minimum of 70% gross profit uh, on that. So that would be, we would be paying uh, $75,000 in technician wages, and we would have uh, $175,000 in margin remaining left over. So when you add the 125 and the 175, we have a gross profit of $300,000, right? That's what's left over after paying your parts and paying your technicians. Of that, 200,000 is going to go to your fixed operating expenses, which is 40% of the uh, 500,000. So we're talking about things like your salary as an owner, right? There's got to be some money in there for you because uh, you have to replace the wage that you have when you're working somewhere else. Your occupancy cost, right? You're looking at what are you going to rent, lease, buy to operate your shop with. And then in the middle of all of that is your utilities. And, and all the rest of it, leaving over that net profit of $100,000. Now, if you think of this, $75,000 for technician wages, what's that going to give you? That might give you one technician, right, Chris? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe in some marketplaces, you can get 
uh, a good technician for 50,000 and maybe you can get an apprentice for 25,000, right? Like maybe in a smaller rural area, that kind of thing. But 75,000 is already, you know, in any urban setting is already too low for a professional automotive service technician. So right away, this begins to give you a hint that a $500,000 shop might not be big enough to create the net profit of $100,000. But guess what? No need to be discouraged. Because let's say, for example, you only make a 10% net profit. Let's say you make $50,000 in your first year. All right, so that means there's $50,000 more in technician wages available. So you can actually have two technicians, and now you can grow the business. Right, because you now have more capacity to go grow more sales. So I do see shops that are at around five hundred to six hundred thousand, and they do uh, relatively well. They generally have two technicians. They will have the owner will be the service advisor for full time. Um, their spouse might be a bookkeeper, or they might have a, a bookkeeper that they hire, you know, temporarily and stuff like that. Um, and it can be done. But I got to tell you, Chris, in reality, and and this is again not a criticism of a smaller shop. But when you get to that million dollars in sales, and you get to, with my clients, we call it the million dollar club, um, life just begins to get sweeter. You now have two technicians, an apprentice, uh, or a more junior technician. Uh, you now have a full-time service advisor. Um, you maybe support that advisor because they're pretty busy with three, with three bodies in the bays. Um, but it gives you a chance uh, to have vacations. It gives you a chance for your employees to have vacations because you can cover for each other, right, at that level. And you get to that point. And now with a million in sales, you're going to make that 15 to 20 percent net. You're going to make 150,000 or 200,000 a year on top of that salary that you take home. So somewhere built into there would be a salary that is the equivalent of what you would pay somebody else. So if a good service advisor in your marketplace is $60,000, you should be paying yourself $60,000, taking that out of the company, um, realistically. Now, whether you use that all or not, personally at home, maybe your spouse has a good job, and maybe you know between what you bring home and they bring home, you do really, really well, but why not start using that as a savings fund? Why not putting that into 401ks and other investments, right, RRSPs, um, and create your own personal wealth so that this company that you've built is creating personal wealth. And that's sort of before, you know, maybe we can open it up to some thoughts and questions you might have, Chris, but the idea that I try to get my clients to understand is that when you go into business, the focus is on creating wealth for yourself and your family and, and let's just say shareholders, because maybe you go into a bigger location, maybe you have partners, right? Or maybe your spouse is a partner. Um, whether they work in the business or not, they may be on the books in your corporation, right? build wealth. And so then work backwards from that and find out what you need to do. Because yes, you service and repair vehicles, right? Yes, that's your business model. And yes, you need to make a profit on parts. And yes, you need to charge service and have a service rate. But at the end of the day, when your mindset is, is to create wealth and create your retirement, um, you begin to approach your business very differently. Now, again, when I talk about wealth, some people mishear me. I'm not talking about greed. <laughs> right? I don't know what it is about small business people, but they 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 think that profit is a sin. They feel like making money and having a good paycheck is somehow bad. I, I don't understand why you would go into business and believe that profit wasn't a positive thing, right? So um, 
which then opens up a whole nother can of worms of a conversation. So I'm going to catch my breath here, Chris. Maybe you've got some some thoughts or some questions that your listeners might have. Yeah, no, that that's very good. Yeah, you're definitely solid on the math. Yeah, I'm sitting there thinking like, man, it's a lot of calculating going on there. <laughs> <laughs> but well, no, so you talked about salary for the owner, right? Mm-hmm. So when the when the owner is just starting off, you know, and he's he's establishing the business because he has to make those margins for the company. What's the best way for him to pay himself? Is it better for him to to find a way to create a salary for himself, or is it better for him to take an owner's draw? Oh, okay. So that part is more of an accounting question, which I am ha- I'm okay. happy to answer. Not that I'm an accountant, but um, it's a differentiation that I do hear in discussions, right? So so you're exactly right. Do I pay myself as an employee? with my tax deductions at source and all that other kind of stuff, or do I pay myself um, an owner's draw, right? And at the end of the day, I always say, do what your accountant tells you is best for your tax position. Because it might be better that you you do it one way or the other way, or partially. You can actually do uh, an actual salaried paycheck along with a, an owner's draw, maybe at the end of the year, right? Uh, when they make some adjustments, when you see what your net profit is, you can take out dividends, right? That's another term for that. Owner's draw really is another term for dividends, right? That's where you're taking it, it out that way. The differentiation that I'd like to make, Chris, is regardless of which way you choose to take the money out, you need to take the money out. <laughs> so in other words, if you need, you know, if, if, uh, if a, a person managing your shop would demand $60,000 to manage your shop for you the way you're managing it, then you should be writing yourself a check for $5,000 a month. Whether it's a draw or whether it's a paycheck, again, would determine, right? Your account would then adjust that all at the end of the year. But what I'm saying is that that is coming out of the business bank account and going into your personal bank account. So that if you all of a sudden have a bad month and you still take your paycheck home, what's that going to do to your to your books on your company? It's going to put you in a lost position. That's going to put you into that line of credit. That's going to put you in your company into debt. And now you're going to feel some pressure there. So then what that does is it makes you operate the company so that it can afford to pay you. Because if that was an employee, what would you do? Right? If you didn't have a paycheck for that person, they would quit. Right? So you figure it out. You will make that company go into debt to pay your service manager or to pay your manager. So, and again, Chris, I hope everybody listening understands you know, that I don't want people to go into debt. But what I'm saying is, is it's a psychological place that when you start feeling that pressure that your company went into line of credit because you still took a paycheck home, that means you got to put on your big boy pants, your big girl pants to figure out how to make more money in this place, right? Whether it's better margins, whether it's uh, more sales, whether it's car count, things like that. I mean, the most common thing I see when somebody first joins me and we analyze their numbers is that they're not charging enough for their parts. They're usually running around 35% gross profit margin, which is, which is you know, a little ways away from that 50%, all right? So sometimes that 15% is all the difference in taking that paycheck home. So then they learn about how to put a, a parts matrix into their software, uh, you know, and that is where you charge a higher margin for little low-cost things and a lower margin for bigger things like engines, right? So you want to be getting, you know, 80% margin on light bulbs and and hose clamps and stuff like that. And maybe on engines, you're going to be getting 25%. And somewhere in the middle is that magic 50, where a tons of stuff that you sell gives you that 50% margin. So what this does is if that owner is on the front counter, 
and they're creating that estimate and they're feeling like they have to discount this thing, all of a sudden their brain goes, yeah, but if I discount this, I'm not going to make payroll. And then it gives them that intestinal fortitude to stand there, create that estimate, and then present it you know, in a strong way, show the value to that client. So that client says yes and goes ahead with that work. So, so you see how the, the psychology of it plays into forcing you as an owner to make the better business decisions so that you actually can take that paycheck home. So you're actually treating yourself uh, as an employee. And again, just to remind everybody, how you take the money out will be, you know, best practices on the part of your accountant, right? Because there, it could depend on your spouse's income. Uh, it could depend on if your spouse, if you have a spouse, if your spouse is a partner, a shareholder in the company. Um, there's different reasons to do things in different ways. But at the end of the day, the other thing to clarify, Chris, and I'm just thinking back to that discussion on Facebook, is is that you should be taking that salary as well as creating that net profit, that that possibility for an owner's draw. Um, of dividends that that would be there, right? And maybe you leave it in the company for growth. Maybe you take some of that out again, depending on your tax position. Um, one of my one of my uh, funnest funnest. I don't know. Is that even a word? I'm a public speaker, and sometimes <laughs> I, I lose my I lose my language. Um, Anyways, one of the, the things that I do that's a lot of fun is occasionally I'll be working with a shop owner, usually a little younger, uh, whose shop is in an area where the the lease rates are reasonable, but the property values are high. So they can afford to lease and run their business, but their business just isn't big enough to buy the property, right, to, to actually own uh, the dirt that, that the shop is on. And they're a little bit discouraged because they want to buy the place and they're just not big enough or having enough profit to do that. And so what I do is I encourage them to make as much profit as they can and take the money out of the company and do other investments, right? Like I've got a couple of shop owners that buy condos, right? Their shop their shop is in an area that is so expensive that they'll never be able to buy it, but they've been able to buy condos on the outskirts of their city and become landlords, and now they have rental income on those condos, right? So again, creating personal wealth, creating a future for yourself, for your kids, Whatever, whether it's college funds, whether it's buying tools for your kid who's going to become a technician, um, you know, having that option, that flexibility, giving money gives you freedom uh, to choose and make decisions. So uh, that is one of my passions when I work with my clients uh, to help them do that. All right. So do you find that, you know, when you're working with people or for people who are starting off, do you, do you find that this portion of planning is lacking? Like oh. that they, that they haven't thought about the end game. Like they haven't thought about, okay, this is where I want my shop to be, but more like more or less, like you said in the beginning, they just want to be free. They want to work for themselves. They want to do better than their old bosses. So they open up a shop and get started without really looking at the the key financial numbers that take, that it takes to be profitable and successful. I, I would say of everything that I'm seeing and hearing and reading in different forums and things like that in my experience. I mean, generally, let me, let me digress momentarily. Generally when somebody finds me, um, they have survived. <laughs> you know, they've been in it, they've been in it for two, three, four years now. And, and they're, the timing is perfect to join coaching, right? It's they, they, they're doing decently and now we can really ramp it up and stuff like that. Uh, I have met people who, who are just starting out and I've worked with them. I've actually met with people who haven't even bought their, haven't even opened their shop yet. And they start with me and then they open their shop together with me and with their group. Right. So that's happened as well. But I would say for the most part, most shops, because many don't survive, they're excited to get a, to break away. They, they see this $120 an hour service rate at the shop they're working at. 
they think to themselves, customers are, you know, that's just way too much money. Um, I'm going to reduce mine to 60 because I can, you know, I can still take my 30 and I can 60. I mean, there's a lot of money there. Uh, I look for the cheapest place to work out of. It might even be my own garage of my house, right? Uh, in many cases, breaking all kinds of, uh, you know, zoning, zoning laws and stuff like that. Um, putting oil and stuff down the, the personal house drains. Um, and, and then I buy the cheapest software or I, or I use QuickBooks. You know, I, I, I find the cheapest help that I can possibly have. And, um, but I'm excited because, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rich now because, you know, I'm going to get all these people. I'm going to steal all these people from, from my boss, right? And they wake up six months in and none of their boss's customers are coming to them. And they can't figure out why. And then all the people that are coming to them seem to still argue about the bill, even at $60 an hour. Because what's happened is, is they've put out the shingle at $60 an hour. They're half the price. What have they attracted? They've attracted all the cheap people or all the people that are broke. And so guess what happens? Now you're arguing with cheap people and broke people all day over $60 an hour, as opposed to why was my boss successful at 120 And that's where they begin to realize that their boss's shop was nicer. It had a better restroom. Uh, it had a counter. It had a better facility. It was more comfortable. Um, there was better parking. Uh, it wasn't just like a little hole in the wall somewhere. Uh, they they got better quality parts. They got a warranty with it. Um, there was a service advisor who walked them through everything because now as an owner, you're teching and advising. Uh, really hard to generate enough revenue by yourself. Uh, and so then what ends up happening is, is they just spiral. They you know, and they're just wondering why they're, and they're so hurt. They're so stressed and they're so confused. They thought they made a good decision. And again, I hope everybody understands listening that I am not criticizing those decisions. I've been there, but it's just so naive. So I would say to everybody, think of a business plan, even the most business plan, Excel spreadsheet, um, and do some of the numbers, you know, based on, on this information, reach out to Chris, reach out to me, you know, we'll uh, we'll send you this little email that I sent to Chris of the the basic content of our conversation here, and, and give you a hand to to do that. Um, there's a business consultant and trainer in Canada by the name of Donald Cooper. Now he does uh, he does speak uh, all over the United States. Um, he uh, he comes from a family of um, Cooper Sports. So those of you that watch hockey or baseball or football, and you you hear you know see a Cooper helmet or that that's the family that he's from. Now he broke away from his family and uh, went into women's wear stores. Very brilliant man in what he did. Now he writes and consults and teaches. And he always talks about how in any given community, there's roughly five of each business, right? So there's five barbers, five delis, five automotive shops, five whatever's, right? And he always talks about how uh, two of them are successful all the time. One of them is on the fence, you know, could go could go broke or could go good, and two are always going broke. But those two are always being replaced by two more. Now think about it this way. Two shops are always going broke. They're taking resources from that community. They're taking money from customers that could be going to the other three shops. They're taking employees from other shops and right, spreading the place too thin. Now, Donald Cooper doesn't necessarily say there's a solution to that, except for the the inspiration of do you want to be one of those two shops that's always growing broke and and taking business oxygen out of that business community right because because it's basically wasting money it's wasting resources to open up and uh you know buy all kinds of stuff go into debt and then walk away from tool companies or parts companies 
um, you know, these parts companies, some of them are small independent businesses themselves, jobbers, right? And now you owe them $40,000 for parts and you go broke and now they have to eat 40,000. And now that, that hits their bottom line, their employees' paychecks, their paychecks, and it cycles all the way up. So part of this is, is to, before you start a business, think about who you're accountable to. Like, let's even, let's just get away from talking about numbers for a sec, Chris. If you open up a business, you're accountable, in my opinion, you're accountable to bring home a paycheck, number one. Number two, you're accountable to your employees to give them a paycheck. Number three, you're accountable to your clients to remain open to make sure that you can offer warranty and support them right after they have spent money with you. Number four, you're accountable to your suppliers and to your bank, right? Because you owe them money and you're accountable to them. And I always add a fifth one. You're accountable to your competitors, right? Do you want to be known as the guy that drags the market down? Do you want to be known as the guy that drags the prices in the market down, right? You're the one that's going to be cheapest and you're going to steal all that business. And at the end of the day, um, you know, you steal business away from these people. Now, here's the other re realization that I've been having in the last few years, Chris, is those shops, as much as I'm being pretty hard on them, actually some of them, you know, can do well enough that they're paying themselves, working out of their garage type of a thing. They do provide a, a, a service to society, right? There is a segment of our population that is really financially challenged. And uh, some of these, what we call backyard shops, actually do, do provide a service and help those people at their at their lower rates. So there's a place, I guess, for everyone. But uh, if anybody is serious about business and creating wealth, you know, my advice is is the things that we've been talking about today. Yeah, no, and the thing is, is that when you're dealing with trying to be the cheapest in town, you, you deal with those people who who you know want the free or want the cheap or the, the lower the lower cost service. Mm -hmm. But those people tend to have a mindset that I want high quality for the low price and so yeah. they really they really <laughs> pester you for perfection when they're not paying for that and and yeah. at the end of the day when when the shop owner sets their rate it's not about the number on the wall so to speak you know and i think a lot yeah. when you when you walk away from a, a shop to start your own you're looking at that number on the wall like you said and saying well i can charge lower and do better but it's more about that number represents the expertise of the shop you know you're paying that's, that's what people are paying for they're paying for that expertise they're paying for that training that those guys back there have well, they're paying they're paying for absolutely everything that you bring to the table. You're exactly right, Chris. I actually uh, have not brought this up yet, but I besides talking about um, all these numbers, we haven't really talked about the rate till you brought it up. I actually use the term facility service rate, um, not just a labor rate or not just service rate. I talk about facility service rate, and I have a calculator that I work with with my clients. And uh, we enter in a bunch of factors. We enter in what their current service rate is. And then we say, what happens if I need to give my technicians a $5 an hour raise? What would my service rate need to go to? Or what happens if I'm going to buy a $20,000 lab scope? What would my service rate have to go to offset that? Um, we also talk about how uh, the parts margin affects the service rate, right? So, you know, I'll start off with somebody who's at, who's at uh, $100 an hour for, for easy math, uh, and their parts margin is only 35%, uh, when that put in uh, a 50% margin into this little calculator, it actually says that their service rate can drop down to 80. Because we don't just make money off the service rate, we make money off the parts, right? So every hour that we sell comes with margin on parts and comes with margin on service. And so it's the combination of those those two things, right? And then what happens? Here's the other one. What happens if there's no part sales? Uh, 
Now what does the service rate need to be? So now we're talking about testing, or now we're talking about working on an electric car, where all we're doing, all we're doing is uh, software updates, um, and there's no margin on parts. What does our service rate have to be then? And that shop that's at 100 is going to be anywhere from 160 to 175 on jobs where there's no parts involved. So now we're going to talk about multiple service rates, depending on the type of work that we do. So I hope that we're not overwhelming people with these numbers, but uh, I think we've kept it pretty basic. But I think what we do is we keep opening conversations, and I hope your listeners get interested in, in learning more about how to do this and talk about this. Yeah, so for the listener who's interested in learning more about, you know, how to get inside their numbers, Murray, or, you know, how to really, how to dissect those numbers to figure out where they need to be in order to properly pay their technicians or how to properly pay their advisors or to have a profitable shop or to even hit that million dollar mark, you know, what, how, how do they reach you? How do they get a hold of you to, to, to learn more? So so there's two things. So one is murrayvoth at rpmtraining.net is my email address. You can reach out to me. Uh, I don't reply instantly, but I reply to absolutely every email. Uh, the other thing to do is go to my website, rpmtraining.net, and uh, there's a different contact boxes there. Where you can subscribe to a newsletter or you can put your information in um, where it says take the first step. And in your notes, say, please send me the facility service rate calculator and I'll send them that spreadsheet, no charge. Uh, happy to serve and let them play around with that and, and uh, give them some insight into uh, how to calculate their service rate. So be happy to send that out when they reach out to me. Excellent. And I, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk, I could talk to you all day about this. There's so much yeah. to unpack. I know that I know we have a limited amount of time, but uh, mm -hmm. I definitely appreciate what you shared today. And I'll put this information in the service and uh, in, sorry, in the service, I'll put this information in the show notes so people can kind of get the beginning and we'll kind of treat this as a basic episode and maybe we'll get sure. together again and, and dive deeper in. That's awesome, Chris. Thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate you taking time with me. Thank you so much, Murray. And that's going to do it for us here today at Ratchet & Wrench Radio. Uh, I'd like to invite you to follow us on our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as subscribe to our email newsletter, which goes out daily. Uh, and you can find that at ratchetandwrench.com. That's R-A-T-C-H-E-T-A-N-D-W-R-E-N-C-H.com. And may the rest of your day be the best of your day. And we'll see you next week.